like shrapnel wounds and uh, bullet wounds as well. Uh, I was wondering uh, if uh, it, that has been the case and whether uh, Ukraine has enough of those to actually go around. Uh, I'm curious, uh, в начале войны uh, были некоторые исследования по поводу так званой вакуумной терапии, uh, по поводу uh, ран, которые um, происходят как от пуль, так и от шапнелей разных. То есть слышали ли вы от этих исследований, используется ли эта вакуумная терапия в вашей практике? Uh, что вы можете об этом сказать? Да, конечно, слышал, вакуумная терапия она используется в военных госпиталях здесь у нас в Украине и до этой войны, то есть она используется, насколько я понимаю, еще с 2018 года, это то, что слышал я, используется сейчас активно. И почему и стоял вопрос о госпитализациях непосредственно даже гражданского населения, от обстрелов, то есть с миновзрывными травмами, с обширными повреждениями конечностей и так далее, других частей тела, именно военные госпиталя, потому что сейчас военные госпиталя действительно они снабжены в достаточном количестве, как мне объясняли непосредственно и травматологи, и хирурги в военных госпиталях, именно вот этими вот аппаратами для вакуумного для лечения ран, обширных ран именно в вакууме. Вот. И очень об этом отзываются положительно, оно способствует скорейшему заживлению раны. Вот. Поэтому, насколько я знаю, это очень широко используется. Вот. Во всяком случае, в военных госпиталях. Yeah, Uh, it's been used in the military hospitals even before the war, I mean, since 2019. Uh, I, and I've heard that right now it's been actively used. Uh, as I mentioned, this, this is one of the reasons why military hospitals are uh, urging uh, to bring both the civilians and military to them, because especially if there are some massive uh, wounds uh, Uh, or injuries on limbs and so on and so forth. So those hospitals, they have enough equipment in terms of vacuum therapy. Um, they, uh, and the surgeons also mentioned that they have enough equipment uh, to provide necessary health care for the wounded, uh, especially treating injuries caused by uh, shrapnels and uh, bullets. And I have heard only positive feedback about them. They um support uh the 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 fastest way uh of 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 of, of the <coughs> apologize uh the fastest way to cure uh the 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 wound so mostly they are used in the military hospitals that's what i know for sure thank you Tom. okay um thanks for joining us um i was going to ask if he was seeing a lot of concussions and brain injuries but he said that he already has um i wondered if they've got a quick way of just checking people's cognition things like memory um because if someone suffered a concussion or a brain injury that can be a problem um if they want i have a 10 minute cognitive screening test that is in ukrainian takes 10 minutes and is easy to learn um i could email it um maybe via uh verlaine um w would that be useful have they got any way of, of telling if someone's had a, a brain injury or a cognitive injury 
Окей, спасибо большое, что вы сейчас с нами. Я на самом деле хотела спросить, встречались ли вам пациенты с контузиями и с травмами головы? Ну, вы уже это сказали, поэтому у меня такой вопрос. Как вы проверяете состояние сознания пациента, то есть его когнитивные функции? Том говорит, он профессиональный психолог, что у него есть 10-минутный тест на проверку сознание человека, на проверку когнитивных функций человека, а уже на украинском языке. Если вы хотите, если вам это полезно, то он бы отправил имейлом вам или на почту мне, чтобы мы вам передали. То есть, если вот такой способ, если вам это было бы полезно, то он бы с удовольствием поделился этой информацией. Может, у вас есть свой способ? Да, спасибо большое за вопрос. Значит, ну, к сожалению, в боевых условиях, условиях стрелов мы не можем в полной степени оценивать, ну, возможно, в полной степени оценивать неврологический статус каждого пациента. То есть, получая пациента с первого плеча эвакуации, я оцениваю его сознание по градации сознания ясное, сопор, ступор, либо это кома. Далее для меня имеет значение наявность у него открытых повреждений, в том числе, если это контузия, в том числе и открытых повреждений головы, то есть либо закрытая черепно-мозговая травма, либо открытая черепно-мозговая травма. Это обязательная пульсосимметрия, вот, обязательное измерение артериального давления. Вот, для того, чтобы оценить его состояние, то есть как и наличие щитного давления, так и повышенного, так и его отсутствие, а также э, наличие надлежащей сатурации. Вот, поэтому мы состояние оцениваем э, то есть путем контакта э, с ним, но это опять же это все происходит в, пери в период его перегрузки э, либо с бронированного транспорта к нам в Медевак, либо уже по дороге непосредственно уже в госпиталь. То есть для меня на данном этапе имеет большое значение это наличие у него внутричерепной гипертензии, это оценка его сознания для того, чтобы либо ему нужно помогать обеспечивать проходимость дыхательных путей и поддержание надлежащей оксигенации организма, либо же он может это делать самостоятельно. Вот. Поэтому ну, как, так, как таковой развернутый нейрологический статус мы его не устанавливаем. А предложение по поводу наличия этого теста, конечно, мы с удовольствием примем, потому что ну, в любое свободное время медик должен развиваться, в том числе и военный медик. Поэтому Естественно, тех знаний, несмотря на то, что мы посещаем всевозможные курсы, в том числе и инструкторов иностранных, но очень интересна нам любая информация, которую можно будет использовать как на пользу своей работы, так и на пользу здоровья пациента. Uh, as to your uh, suggestion or proposal, yes, of course, please send it to us. Every kind of information is really interesting for us and it's very uh, helpful and beneficial. And every medic, every healthcare personnel um, member should uh, do this in any type of whether there's like a chance or free time uh, we have to continue develop and improve and even though we keep coming to some kind of courses we do have foreign instructors any type of information is interesting for us because it's going to be by the end of the day really uh, beneficial 
to uh, to everyone. But let's come back to the to this question. So thank you for the question. Unfortunately, in the current combat um, uh, combat conditions that we are facing, I can't fully in 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 that surrounding those that environment. I can't conduct a full uh, like scope of uh, the cognitive and neurological uh, evaluations of the status of the um, of of the patient while assessing the the cognition. I, I basically have while assessing the condition. I basically have like is it clear or it's stuttering or it's like no non non responsive or it's like coma, like briefly saying. And obviously, um, then I, I start checking uh, whether there are some kind of visible traumas. There's like concussion, maybe there's like an open head trauma. Then I check the pulse, then I check saturation, and I, I basically conduct every possible um, every possible checkup that I can do in the moment when I'm getting the patient from the armored personal carrier to the Medivac, uh, Medivac station, like Medivac uh, SUV. And it's not such, uh, like the, the, the time is all, all, almost limited. So basically we need to check, uh, obviously, whether it's like a high blood pressure, uh, like hypertension, then we do some sort of like uh, cognitive evaluation, but it's like a primary one. In, in order to conduct this medivac from the front line to the hospital, uh, checking whether the person can uh, keep it up and on his own, it's 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 basically primary uh, primary stages. Um, so yeah, but uh, thanks for your request. Thanks for your uh, suggestion. I would gladly accept uh, whatever you have to send us. Thank you. Thank you, Slava Ukraine. Heroin Slava. Heroin Slava. Uh, unsure on the next order. We've got 10 minutes until our next amazing guest. We're really impressed by you, uh, Shum. Really appreciate having you here. I believe it is JJ, then Nina, then Ghost. I have no idea for sure. So, JJ, you're up. Thanks, Finance, um, and thanks for Lane. Um, I have a non medical question, um, a little bit more on Shum, and I hope that that's okay. Um, Shum, you clearly have a great love for your country and fellow Ukrainians. And I'd like to know um, what else keeps you going and motivated right now? Сначала Finance сказал, что спасибо большое, что вы сейчас с нами. У нас через 10 минут будет следующий гость. Такая оживленная дискуссия, очень замечательная. Теперь перейдем по рукам. Был вопрос не медицинского характера. Мы все чувствуем, что у вас огромная любовь к вашей стране, к гражданам вашей страны. Что помогает вам продолжать двигаться дальше? Что ваш главный мотиватор? Что продолжает вас держать вот такой настрой и боевой дух, скажем так? Спасибо за вопрос. Да, действительно, я считаю, что как у меня лично, так и у любого гражданина нашей страны, и не только гражданина, а также граждан иных стран, которые приехали специально сюда, как поддержать нас, так и участвовать в боевых действиях, у них имеется просто колоссальный патриотизм. Все потому, что я считаю, что мы воюем за правду. Я считаю, что мы правы. 
в данной ситуации правда, в данной ситуации должна победить, и это понимает весь мир, поэтому весь мир за нас. И я считаю, что в этом и разница между нами и между русскими в том, что если мы боремся за правду, я не понимаю, за что борются они. Я пошел на фронт, понимая то, что моя страна в опасности, моя родина, в том числе там, где я родился и вырос, она сейчас, к сожалению, под оккупацией уже российских войск. Там происходит бесчинство, там происходит беззаконие. Поэтому, не согласившись с этим, да, я не вступил в ряды вооруженных сил, однако я для сам себя определил то, чем я могу быть полезен в данный момент в стране сейчас. Вот, поэтому мы сорганизовались с моими единомышленниками, с ребятами, с моими товарищами. Вот, мы бросили свой бизнес, довольно успешный бизнес. Мы прекратили и свою адвокатскую деятельность, и кто-то прекратил свою лечебную практику, поскольку у нас в группе э, есть два стоматолога. Вот, и сейчас мы на фронте, потому что ну, мы нужны стране, потому что победу можно, победу можно добиться только совместными усилиями. То есть э, сейчас ну, так, э, так правильно, наверное. И для моего понимания, и правильно для страны. Поэтому, безусловно, за нас переживают все, за нас переживают и родные, и близкие. Однако сейчас нужно делать так, потому что врага можно победить только совместными усилиями. Потому что если это не пресечь, это будет длиться дальше и дальше, и это будет и с другими странами. Просто многие в СМИ, в том числе, я уверен, и в ваших СМИ, муссировался вопрос о тех бесчинствах, которые происходили. Ну, ввиду того, что мы непосредственно работали в зоне боевых действий на разных территориях, то есть, ну, да, это страшно, когда ты едешь на вызов, и вдоль дорог лежат тела убитых людей, неприкрытые тела лежат неделями, вот, потому что люди пытались уезжать, пытались спастись, их кто-то убил. Раздавленный автотранспорт, сломанные души, сожженное жилье. Эти старики, которые находятся на линии разграничения, которые не имеют возможности выехать, они существуют на данный момент только благодаря помощи волонтерам, помощи государства, которые они оказывают путем выезда в эти определенные группы на эти территории, то есть помогая, оказывая им помощь продовольствием. В том числе, поэтому и наша работа на передовой – это оказание помощи не только военным, но и населению. То есть для нас не важно, кто нуждается в медицинской помощи. То есть если мы находимся на позиции, есть люди, которые в нас нуждаются, то мы занимаемся этими людьми. Вот. Чтобы, так сказать, разрядить этот вопрос, я быстро хотел рассказать одну смешную историю. Когда мы, находясь на позиции, к нам забежали солдаты, говорят, ребята, а был очень сильный обстрел артиллерийский населенного пункта, в котором мы были. Они говорят, мы проезжали, лежит дедушка. Под деревом его, наверное, поразило снарядом, вот. ему, наверное, нужна помощь, но мы не могли остановиться, потому что плотно обстреливали. Мы взяли рюкзаки, поскольку это только закончился обстрел, ну вот, и пешком побежали в те координаты, которые нам указали военные. Ну, подбежав к дедушке, оказалось, что дедушка после обстрела вышел просто полежать под вишней на траве. Поэтому мы, мокрые как мыши, от того, что бежали с рюкзаками со всем обеспечением, вернулись довольны на позицию, слава богу, что мы там не понадобились. Okay, it's gonna be a long one, but just bear with me. Uh, and I have to make one statement. For those of you who doesn't understand the difference between Russian and Ukrainian language, we are speaking right now in perfect Russian. Like, I am speaking with him in Russian, he is speaking with me in Russian. 
anyway, so thank you for your question. Uh, for me personally, as for any uh, citizens of our country of Ukraine and all the other uh, like foreigners, uh, it it's just a representation of the grand uh, patriotic feeling because we are fighting for the truth, for the justice. We are right. We we know that the truth should eventually prevail and. That's why the whole world is standing with us. And the difference between between uh, us and Russians is that we are fighting for the truth, for the justice. And I don't understand what are they fighting for. My uh, motherland, I mean, my um, hometown right now is being occupied by Russians and they are committing atrocities there absolute hor hor horrible atrocities and i'm right now not in the armed forces of ukraine but for myself i have identified and defined that i can be helpful for this country uh, with that role that i have taken as of right now and i'm right now with the like mind people uh, with folks and fellas and guys who have um who have uh, decided to step down from the really successful businesses that we had before like from our legal practice two of the folks actually have uh, have been dentists before so they have stopped their uh, dental practice and have become uh, paramedics and helping out on the front but because we understand that only with joint efforts we can uh, we can win this war uh and it's 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 just the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do for me. It's the right thing to do for the country. And obviously, everyone is worried uh, about us, um, our families, relatives, close ones. But we understand that the enemy can be defeated only acting united as we are. And uh, if right now we don't stop them, uh, then... It, it won't, won't be able to stop. It's going to spread to other countries. And all the atrocities that had been happening, uh, like, you know, we have worked in the like areas where hostilities were happening in, in, in Kyiv. And it's, it's really terrifying. It's really terrifying when you're um, when you're driving through the street and there are like, like bodies, there are corpses everywhere just lying around not even covered by anything for weeks because there wasn't any chance to 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 get them from there because there there wasn't any chance to do that or there's like absolutely crushed vehicles or the the absolutely burned facilities or houses where someone lived or those elderly people who didn't even had the chance to get evacuated uh, who are right now existing they're not even living, they're existing thanks to the volunteers. Um, thanks to the volunteers, the provision and supplies and food gets to them um, at time. So that's why uh, our job right now is helping the uh, population, is helping everyone who needs our help. It, it doesn't even matter if it's a military uh, personnel, soldier, like a civilian, it doesn't matter. If we are there and someone needs our help, we are eager to provide it. 
Uh, and just 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 to uh, to chill a little bit the atmosphere because obviously we've been talking about something really terrifying. So it's such such a funny story from our like life. Uh, so we were uh, hiding from uh, from the shelling. It was like an art shelling uh, all over the positions, and soldiers rushed to us, and uh, we were like, "What happened?" And there's like. We were trying to get out of this over the place, and there was like a grandpa, and it was almost over. It was after the artillery shelling, and there was like a grandpa lying beneath the tree, like underneath the tree, uh, and uh, and they were like, we weren't able to evacuate, and so, and at that moment we realized that oh shit, there is like a grandpa who needs our help. So we got our backpacks. We decided to walk on foot because, um, because it was after the artillery shelling. So going by car was like a no go, and we rushed towards the coordinates that were providing us. And once we got there, we we were laughing so hard because that. Poor grandpa just came out of his house after the artillery shelling just to lay down underneath underneath his favorite cherry tree. We were completely, uh, completely uh, like soaked wet because we were sweating so much, like completely, completely drained, but still really happy and joyful because the grandpa was alive and we didn't need to save him from anything. Uh, and we had such an extraordinary experience. Спасибо большое, да, действительно очень Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Uh, since we still have a little time, we really appreciate you still being here. Nina, please ask your question. Uh, thank you, Finance. Uh, for Shum, uh, thank you for being here and thank you for the work you are doing. Uh, I know that the work of a paramedic uh, only, um, like in a, in a place where there is not war, is also can be like really challenging and requires a lot of skills. Uh, I, I think Shum has a hot mic. Sorry. Um, yeah, so I have an echo. А, Шум, Шум, вы могли бы сейчас нажать на микрофончик, это что яко идет от того, что у вас включенный микрофон? uh body and uh but i'm asking uh, a question also i know that the doctors and paramedics they have to learn how to treat the patient with uh, like a lot of uh like calm so that the patient will patient will also feel the calm um just to stabilize also because this is also a very like uh, important thing to the the mental state and um so uh after uh, like hearing these stories and being uh, as a paramedic in a war it must be something like the intensity must be something like uh, i can't comprehend mm, so uh how do you shum, uh, find your strength and and uh, like find uh, the calm and the peace within yourself uh so that you can continue what you are doing 
Thank you. Спасибо большое за всю вашу работу. Мы понимаем, насколько работа парамедика тягостная, наверное, представить это нам тяжело. Ясно, что в аспектах работы с физическим состоянием человека это одно дело, скажем так, справляться с физическим состоянием. А как, как касаемо вот вашего уровня спокойствия? Вот, например, мне кажется, что ментальное душевное состояние парамедика, оно переходит на, на пациента. То есть вот, то, же, то же самое телесное спокойствие, которое, с которым вы справляетесь с этим. Ну, то есть, мне кажется, что после этих историй, как вы рассказали, мне представляется, что парамедик на войне с той всей интенсивностью боевых действий, с интенсивностью работы, очень трудно, очень трудно сохранять вот это состояние спокойствия, которое мы могло перейти на пациента. Как вы находите в себе силы успокаивать себя, успокаивать пациента и при этом еще сохранять какой-то внутренний мир в себе? Вот такой вот вопрос. Спасибо большое. Ну, перед тем, как ответить на вопрос, я хотел бы сказать, что опыт именно экстренной медицинской помощи я имею еще с времен, когда я работал на скорой. Я работал довольно долго, я работал на скорой помощи 5 лет. Поэтому многое я видел, с многим я сталкивался. Кроме этого, до того, как я занимался адвокатской практикой, я больше 12 лет работал в прокуратуре. Поэтому прокурор, он в принципе должен иметь самообладание, уметь справляться со своими эмоциями, справляться с собой. Поэтому, наверное, это все в совокупности и дало мне возможность сейчас, возможно, где-то и хладнокровно выполнять свою работу, поскольку я считаю, что это именно работа на передовой. То есть я концентрируюсь полностью на пациенте и делаю то, что должен делать. К сожалению, у меня в момент оказания помощи эмоций нет. И их быть не должно, поскольку если меня захлестнут эмоции, это может отразиться на моей скорости, на моей ловкости и как следствие на здоровье и жизни моего пациента. Поэтому это все мне помогает, но, к сожалению, парамедик должен следить не только за здоровьем своего пациента, но и за окружающей обстановкой, потому что, ну, если я не уберегу бригаду свою и не уберегу пациента, то зачем это все, то есть это все будет тщетным. Поэтому, конечно, здесь нам нужно быть вдвойне внимательными, вдвойне осторожными. А расслабляемся мы, как и все обычные люди, то есть приезжая, мы имеем один день выходной, мы два, двое суток дежурим на передовой, и один день у нас есть отсыпной для того, чтобы поспать, подготовиться и каким-то образом восстановиться. То есть помогает спорт, помогает общение с близкими, помогает общение с ребятами непосредственно вне боевой обстановки. Вот. Поэтому, ну, возможно, мы сейчас не имеем, наверное, права на эмоции, на так сказать, потому что, ну, все-таки, я повторюсь, мы боремся за правое дело, и я считаю, что отдыхать мы, наверное, будем уже все после победы. Это, честно говоря, все, что я постоянно говорю, что я отпочину поте. Зараз на час. Да-да-да, да-да, не на часе, не на часе. Не на часе, вообще не на часе. Я не могу сказать одну вещь, я скажу тебе later on. Sorry. 
so thank you for such an interesting question. Yeah, uh, the paramedic is a person who should radiate this calmness, yes. Uh, but you have to understand that before even coming uh, here working as a paramedic, I had an experience working in a first aid, so uh, an emergency care treatment. I've been uh, there working in the, uh, with, with the crew of ambulance for five years. I have seen a lot of stuff. I have done, dealt with a lot of stuff. Plus, in addition to this, I have worked uh, as a prosecutor for 12 years, and you have to have this um, sense of uh, stoicism, uh, yeah, self, uh, uh, self uh, ability to get yourself to calmness, to uh, overcome everything. I think everything uh, in in a fusion, everything combined right now helps me to work and overcome everything being on the front line. So I completely focus uh, myself uh, on the patient. And unfortunately, I don't have any emotions at that moment. I don't have anything at all. Like I just use my, because every emotion, my might just decrease my speed, my agility, and uh, like as a result, it can also affect the health of the patient. And not only the patient, because you have to understand that while I am taking care of the patient, treating him, uh, providing treatment, I also have to make sure of the surrounding, uh, that I have to make sure that the like myself, the patient, and the crew will be safe and we'll get back to safety because if i don't do that and if everyone dies everything is just in vain like why why even why do we even do this then so i have to be uh like twice as cautious twice as careful twice as calm and how do we get like rest or relax well we do have one day off so we work uh, like two day shift and one day off two days we are on the front line one day we have like uh, a day to to sleep and uh, rest and recuperate the sport helps a lot uh, conversations and communications with our close ones helps a lot just just conversations outside of the uh, combat uh, help helps a lot. Uh, I mean, from the co combat surrounding. And uh, maybe that's just my thought, but maybe we don't have this right to express our emotions right now, because once again, we are fighting for the right thing, and we will get our rest once the fight is over. And we kind of agreed and laughed that it's, it's not like, it, it, time-wise, it, it's not the time to rest. We will rest once we are victorious. Thank you very much, Shum. Been here longer than we, we were uh, prepared for. We have our next guest speaker. This is the most crowded afternoon we've had in a while. Uh, I can briefly say for generations of my family, as my grandfather was a uh, combat medic himself against uh, the hostile armies of World War II for the Americans, I am thrilled to uh, be able to, I'm here able to support the Ukrainian combat medic fighting for his country on the strong, on the front lines. We find it very inspiring. Uh, our next guest, uh, if you don't mind, thank you. You're welcome back anytime, sir. Uh, if you give us some heads up, we'll be happy to find someone here who can translate for you. And uh, I think we've all truly appreciated it. I've gotten a number of PMs uh, stating how much uh, you are truly loved and what you've had to bring to us has been great. Hey, 
Спасибо большое, Шум, что вы сегодня к нам присоединились. Вы держались с нами даже дольше, чем мы на это рассчитывали, зная, какое драгоценное для вас время. Поэтому мы все очень-очень благодарны. Ждем вас, когда у вас будет возможность. Просто так напишите нам чуть-чуть заблаговременно, что вам у вас есть время забежать, и мы найдем вам переводчика, то есть меня, например. И сейчас у нас уже время для нового гостя. Но Файнанс рассказывает, что никогда бы не мог подумать, что когда-то, зная, что у него сам дед был боевым медиком, он будет помогать освещать информацию от парамедика о событиях вот такого характера. Поэтому спасибо вам большое, если сегодня к нам присоединились. Для нас это реально очень честь. И для меня особо на реально просто дячность того, что все выработает. Правда, очень-очень благодарна за всю вашу работу. Большой, большой привет и спасибо бригаде. Вот мы, мы не с вами физически, но мы всегда с вами, за вами, за всех. Да, спасибо вам большое. Спасибо и вам за то, что вы освещаете наши проблемы, что вы не безразличны к той беде, которая у нас происходит. Вот, за то, что вы понимаете, что эта беда может распространиться и на другие страны, и на другие континенты. Спасибо за помощь, которую вы оказываете, поскольку я думаю, что и наша пресса освещает, и вы видите, что действительно та помощь, которая исходит и от западных всех партнеров, в частности от Соединенных Штатов Америки, она не проходит незамеченной. Это очень придает нам сил и уверенности в нашей борьбе, и это очень бьет по врагу, что, ну, безусловно, не может нас не радовать. Спасибо вам огромное. Все будет Украина. Все будет Украина. Вырежите, вы будете ласки. Спасибо большое, спасибо большое, спасибо Uh, thanks for uh, for your attitude because you realize that this kind of uh, this kind of horrifying event might might just spread all over the world. So thanks for every help that you've been provided. I know that the media has been covering how much of the assistance and help has been coming from the partners, and you have to understand that nothing comes uh, unnoticed. We 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 see how much. Uh, the West and the, uh, the U.S. Uh, and the miracle world has been providing for us. It gives us more strength and confidence, that, and it 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 just uh, hits the enemy so hard you can't even imagine. So everything uh, will be Ukraine eventually, meaning everything will be good. So thank you so very much. Very much. I would like to take the moment to announce our next guest. We have a very packed afternoon, Mr. Lucas Tamiki of LRT Capital. He's a hedge fund manager who uh, has was also Polish-born. I would love for him to give a little more of his own bio because he understands the region quite well. Um, I remember I once had the pleasure of uh, seeing inside his apartment and on his walls he keeps uh, four pictures of the gentlemen and uh, I believe there's of the people, I should say, who helped bring down the first, the last iteration of the horrific Russian Empire, the Soviet Union. Uh, so def definitely this is a conflict that he uh, understands uh, quite well. So without further ado, welcome to the space, Lucas. Uh, thank you, finance. Uh, thank you all. I, I hope uh, you're all positive after the previous speaker. And I think that's um, very brave work that uh, people are doing on the front lines. 
Um, you know, unfortunately, what I'm about to tell you may be more depressing. So that's why I'm, I'm hoping you're starting from a good high point of spirits. Um, as finance mentioned, I'm originally from Warsaw, Poland. I grew up in the UK, years in the United States. And as he mentioned further, I do manage an investment fund based in Austin, Texas. Um, you know, what I can speak to is what I see from, from the Western perspective and, and how I think the conflict may, um, you know, the war, we can say war in this, this uh, space. We don't have to. Yeah, we're having issues with your audio, Lucas. Oh, we are. Okay. Yeah, your audio is coming in and out. Yes, we are very clear here that it's a war. This is not a conflict. We aren't sugarcoating anything. There's a genocide going on. We aren't pretending here. Great. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on vacation in Punta Cana. So what, whatever, um, you know, you may not be hearing is unfortunately due to the, the wonderful cell reception here. Um, it's the best I can do. Um, I'll keep my remarks brief, I guess. Um, you know, it comes to great now. I'll just let you know when you break up. It's fine. We're used to it. Perfect. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I do think, uh, the most important thing to me when I think about the situation in Ukraine is that the Western response has been reactive, has been semi-passive, has been always trying to, you know, not upset Putin in any way. Uh, or minimize kind of upsetting him and kind of too little. I think that's prolonged conflict, unfortunately. Um, you know, and so that to me is the, the key, key fact. And unfortunately, um, you know, especially in the U.S., we're moving towards the midterm elections. And the issue of Ukraine is, is you know, it's not even a top five issue for most voters. So I would add that I worked in political consulting um, for a while. So, you know, I, I don't think there's going to be any dramatic breakthrough, unfortunately, in the situation. We just heard Lavrov say today they want to take more territory. So now, you know, the Russian position, if you will, has evolved. It's no longer about denazification or the Donbass. It's just kind of a bigger land grab. And I think the U.S. and, you know, the EU will provide some support from the humanitarian and military side, but just enough um for the Ukrainians not to lose probably and probably none for them to really win. And as a result, we're heading towards, I think, a prolonged war. And to me, the economic consequences of that are a much weaker Europe, which is much more dependent on you know, energy supplies from Russia and a relatively stronger U.S., which is really isolated from you know, what's happening in Europe. It's energy secure and it's kind of far away. Um, so it's relatively in a better position. And I think the last thing I'd add is, you know, there is going to probably be a fracturing of the political consensus in Europe as energy scarcity, energy prices really affect industry in Germany and other places and countries like Hungary. You know, Viktor Orban has buddied up to Putin and, and he's happy and he has gas supplies assured. Um, so unfortunately, I think the longer this lasts, the weaker Europe gets and the more fractured it gets, um, you know, and, and Ukraine probably continues to bleed, unfortunately, for, for a prolonged period. So, um, you know, I think I'll stop here and see if you have any questions. Yeah, we actually have regular military updates um, from both local. Uh, we have our own military experts who are regulars on the space, but also people you might know, like John Spencer, 
uh, Chuck Fair, and on some occasions, Alexander Binman all stop in and discuss the military situation. Um, there's definitely a current logistical almost collapse going on with the Russian lines, with the advent, with the introduction of HIMARS into the Ukrainian uh, military. So I actually personally kind of agree with you on how energy is fracturing the European consensus. But I would push back and say, what does your outlook look like with the same European political analysis, but a situation where Ukraine actually does, if given, because they are being given the kind of artillery that can just stop Russia to allow a win. What happens if Ukraine wins and that other kind of fracturing occurs in Europe? What does that look like to you? How does that change your outlook? Sure, what a Ukrainian win looks like at this point. You know, if you mean by taking back all the territory that it previously had, um, you know, pre February, or are we talking I'm about. I'm saying pre 2014, Donbass, Luhansk, and Crimea. Um, I, I will eat my hat if that happens. Can we uh, film that then? I, then? Sorry, if that happens, then I think that's wonderful. Um, and everyone rushes towards celebration and peace. And I suspect, um, regrettably, but I, I suspect Russia, Russia will be welcomed with open arms back to the world probably much sooner than, than it deserves to because of you know, its vast energy resources and the desire of the West to continue exploiting them. Axel, I think you might have a good comment here. Well, one or two. Uh, first and foremost, Lukas. Good to meet you. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I think you, you pointed uh, the finger directly at the wound, the uh, fracturing in Europe, whenever there's a possibility. And uh, shall we say, whenever there's a, a possibility to be on the wrong side of history, the Europeans, specifically the Germans, are very good at it. But in this instance, obviously, the political landscape in Europe has not yet uh, shifted to the point that they do understand that Americans, Brits, Australians, Kiwis, and Canadians have saved them already twice. And this time around, the Europeans have to do their bidding together with them. Uh, that probably has not quite happened in that regard. I tend to agree that there is a sincere risk. But uh, let me disabuse you of the notion that Ukraine has no chance of taking the territory back. And uh, I will welcome you to select the hat you're going to be eating whilst finance and I will film it and we'll have a beer afterwards to gulp it down. Because um, if you were to, if you had the opportunity to listen a few weeks ago when uh, General McRyan, a former Major General of the Australians, who's been embedded with NATO, as well as the DOD for many years and has been touring a few countries where the Americans and others have lost a lot of blood and treasure in recent 20 years. As Mick Ryan analyzed it rather clearly, is that uh, the Russians cannot sustain that war. And whilst the bleeding is on the Ukrainian side, the logistical challenge, which another good general who's been not only a friend of the program, but been with us on a regular basis, Ben Hodges, former 7th uh, Army, U.S. Army Europe commander, uh, and who called out Putin's uh, war together with Philip Breedlove between 2014 and 2016 publicly and explained how Putin would do it, by the way, which is exactly what happened. They all have so far agreed on one, is that the introduction of well-suited weapon systems will change the calculus. And Ukraine has shown that it can actually execute and prosecute that. So I put it to you. Ukraine will take out 
the logistical functions of the Russian army. And we will see not only their culmination, which has already begun at various parts of the front face, but there will be deep strikes committed because the Ramstein 4 meeting and the discussions which have been had today in Washington will lead to the release of Atacams. It will lead to the release of Bradleys and other, other infantry fighting vehicles, which the Ukrainians militarily will need. So in that regard, I can provide you a bit more comfort that contrary to what often is perceived as a very, very difficult, and it is difficult, but a very difficult, if not insurmountable Russian offensive capacity, we are the West. We're supplying them and we're supplying them with a lot more than most people can see because they see above the radar. With that being said, imagine what I said is true and imagine that Ukraine will now prosecute. What would you expect? How would Russia, knowing that it's losing, react? Well, I, I think, you know, it, it's, uh, it would be wonderful if, if things do turn out that way, Axel. And, um, you know, I'm certainly cheering on the Ukrainian side. Um, you know, how would they react? I, I, I think the rational actor would probably look to find some peace um, and, and some negotiated settlement. Um, but um, so I'm, I'm afraid that's probably what we see. And I, I guess some kind of ceasefire agreement probably relating to, you know, the upcoming winter is, is what I would expect. And frankly, I would expect that anyway. Because fighting in the winter is going to be much more difficult for, for both sides. Um, and from the Russian side, if I was Russian, kind of military operation. Because you're breaking up again, sir. Sorry. Um, I would simply say, you know, I would be looking to some kind of ceasefire or the end of the military operation this winter. Let the Europeans starve themselves and freeze themselves with their, you know, lower and lower supplies of natural gas and probably you know, another offensive next spring. That, that's, that's my, my best guess. Um, that, that's, that's my, my guess. Prolonged. Thank you. Um, while, while we're here, Maddie, do you have something on the energy side of this to ask or another related question? I think Tom, Tom Spurs, but I do have an energy question. Tom. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm often wondering how long this more war might continue for. And you said that, you know, as it continues, you're perceiving or um, predicting that the Western consensus could break down, particularly because of the energy, which which Maddie's going to be asking about. Um, I mean, over what period of time do you think the Western consensus will break down? Do you think it could be like this winter or do you think it would take longer than that or, or do you think it's breaking down already like what what period of time do you think the west can sustain the level of support that it is providing at the moment yeah i mean my, my guess is is that you know probably there will be in some countries there there will need to be rationing of gas this winter unless there's some some big change or and more gas you know suddenly becomes available and that means that probably by next spring, when you get into the season where normally you're building gas stock, um, and unless you have a lot of supply and you're building up gas stocks for the next winter, um, you know, then I, I think that's where you probably hit the panic button. There's other options, you know, more supplies from the U.S. There, there's sort of other things that could happen. Um, there's changes Germany can make with respect to nuclear policy and shutting down reactors. Uh, but my best guess, you know, we're probably... 18 months away uh, fr from a real 
kind of hard, hard break. You know, the, the, the forward energy market, for example, in Europe, is between five to 6,000 euros per capita next year. And now Germany, I believe, per capita income is 33,000 euros. So, you know, I, I don't know how that's possible. Uh, Volkswagen seems to be heading for nationalization, frankly, because um, they can't continue operating in those. I mean, you, you can imagine all sorts of crazy scenarios and markets always have this way of jumping to conclusions. So what I'm saying may sound a bit hysterical, um, but that's kind of the, the market always thinks forward. Um, so I'm giving you sort of the, the bleakest uh, scenario. I, I think yeah, next year. Uh, before Mari goes, could you give us a little more data on the numbers you've run as far as what at the current rate you're looking at European energy prices look like this winter? And even is there even supply at certain prices? So the numbers I've seen, you know, suggest that that Germany may drop supply natural gas storage, which normally doesn't happen in the summer. Normally you have you go into the winter uh, with peak supply and you draw those stocks down through through the winter. Right. There were reports uh, a couple of days ago about the largest uh, one of the largest utilities in Germany needing to uh, market the spot high that they were, you know, potentially heading for bankruptcy and potentially needing to be nationalized by the, by the federal government of Germany. Um, you know, there are reports, again, suggesting between five to six thousand euros of additional cost uh, in Germany. In Poland, you know, gas prices and electricity prices have more than doubled year over year. And uh, people are being told to expect another doubling uh, this winter. Poland, but it's finishing um, is going to be commissioning a new pipeline, uh, which is going to deliver natural gas from from Norway. So, yeah, and again, Poland is in a better position than than many other countries. So, um, you know, I, I think that that's going to continue to be a, a difficult challenge. And especially if you look at twelve months into the future, a lot of German industry will not be able to operate. If you really believe that the future forward price for energy. We've been discussing this topic here in extensio on this space already in March in regard to the um, necessary changes uh, the German government would have to take, but it ideologically was unwilling to do so. Now, you just highlighted um, rumors of nationalization, which are spreading predominantly in the English language press, but they have absolutely no foundation in fact, because the holding, I mean, especially for Volkswagen, the holding... um, what is it, 31.4% is Porsche, if I'm not quite mistaken, still the family. You have about 11% for the uh, state of Lower Saxony, so which wields a massive influence already. And then there's, what, 10.5 or something for Qatar. I tend to believe that these uh, three definitely have more than enough money to carry Volkswagen through. The question is whether the emergency loan facilities will be open for Volkswagen, which definitely the, the state of Lower Saxony will do which is not a nationalization, but it's a loan program. And as to the other point, one thing is absolutely clear. The energy prices are hitting the chemical industry as well as the manufacturing industry of Germany excessively hard. And that is uh, where the current government is actually pushing Germany over the brink. But at the same time, they know that Germany can, to a certain satisfaction point, still pay higher energy prices, whereas the rest of Europe cannot. We had uh, Dr. Benjamin Schmidt here, a reasonably decent expert in this matter and former uh, member of the National Security Council in the US and uh, Mark Nelson, um, 
an expert in energy production and uh, nuclear energy and a nuclear scientist who all, just like we, agree on this point that Germany needs to turn the ship around, but they won't, and they won't do it politically unless there's pressure. Now, you are in the US, I mean, obviously not on holiday, but still, you are in the US. How do you see, in view of the midterms, the possibility of reinvigorated pressure on Germany in terms of economic policy? Because the current administration does not exert much pressure on Germany. Um, Axel, so first of all, I'm, I'm in no way, you know, um, blaming the, the German government, uh, just to, to be, be very clear about that. And I think they're they're doing the best they can. I do. In <laughs> incredibly <laughs> difficult. Look, I, I think they're doing the best they can in an incredibly difficult um, situation and they have internal politics to deal with as well. Um, as for, um, you know, Germany in the context of the political landscape in the U.S. and mention of either side in the last several months and the average American voter can't locate Germany on the map. So um, when you're talking about the U.S. exerting pressure on Germany, I'm, I'm actually I'm not I didn't I've never heard of the issue to begin with. Well, the Senate Armed Forces Committee and uh, the House have passed resolutions in that regard already. And I do know our friends in the administration, uh, respectively those in the DOD being our friends, because those we know, they um, feel that this is an issue which is highly debated in Senate and, and the House. But obviously you're right, relatively little, if any, of such discussion is taken out in public. I was more referring to the politicians, because if you're in finance, you have your hand on the pulse of the market and therefore what the political framers are doing, if they're doing something. As, as I think the main um, you know, and the, the government is, you know, the government w with the, the president as, as it is, um, you know, I, I think the president has a hard time sometimes knowing where he is when he wakes up in the morning. So, frankly, there, there's very little confidence on him leading any policy um, on the matter. The reality is that likely to take fall, um, which any domestic agenda uh, in the U.S. gridlocked for the next two years. Um, so I, I think that's that's most likely what's going to happen. You know, I think the U.S. may take in more refugees from Ukraine and will probably continue to send additional aid to Ukraine, um, you know, a billion here, a billion there. Um, but but see a lead and a willingness to to lead on any kind of European security issues from from the administration, be it boots on the ground, be it more money, be it, you know, other facilities that might aid U European allies through the winter. I mean, the U.S. is committed to sending exports of LNG, but U.S. export capacity is already uh, maxed out. Uh, the Freeport plant probably will restart in the next 60 days. Uh, but again, that's, uh, you know, pretty much contracted uh, for the next two years. Um, thank you for the explanation. Mari, thank you for waiting patiently, sir. Sure. Uh, I actually have two questions now that uh, brought up LNG. Uh, do the uh, does the infrastructure in Europe actually support the required uh, LNG transportation in case the there's no uh, pipe deliveries from Russia? And how do those numbers of five, five to six k per capita energy costs change? Because I I think those numbers include at least some level of supply coming from Russia. What happens with those numbers? How, how, how do forecasts change if there's no supply coming from Russia? And the reason I'm asking this is, of course, I'm speculating, but 
in case Ukraine does win the war uh, very quickly, uh, and by very quickly, I mean within the next uh, six to 12 months, uh, there's a possibility that Russia itself might actually descend into chaos and a civil war might start. So that would completely disrupt the supplies going into Europe. So yes. your question is actually, is it not in the best interest of Europe to actually activate its infrastructure, isn't it? Because Pretty no matter much. how the war... Okay, exactly. sorry. Lukas. I, I'm doing it in a roundabout way. Yes. So, um, you know, Europe does have LNG import capacity, right? They have reliquification terminals. Germany has talked about building additional terminals. Now, these kind of terminals take two to three years to build and Axel will know better the Europe does have capacity to import LNG in significant amounts. Um, you know, I, I think the, the, the bigger point about Russia descending into chaos, um, you know, is a roundabout way of saying um, that many European